Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that, as you know, brings the news before it becomes news, as well as best insight analysis on all topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles and as it's Wednesday's podcast it's your questions answered and so many of you have been asking us what exactly is going on in different parts of the game. First up is the possibility of one of the Glazer siblings selling their shares. It's a very intriguing thought I think for a lot of Manchester United fans given the disaffection they have for the American owners. Uh, Steve Brewer sums up quite succinctly, who asked Duncan, any thoughts on Kevin Glazer selling up 13% of the club? Before Duncan answers that, I'd like to just bring you some breaking news, because as you know, that's what we like to do first on the Transfer Window podcast. And the news is that, yes, it's true that Kevin Glazer has converted um, his shareholding in United from B to A, which means that his voting rights go from 10 to 1. Uh, that's 10 votes per share to 1, uh, which, of course, depreciates his ability to influence issues at the club. But, of course, given he has five siblings um, who are also major shareholders in the club, that does not decrease the Glazers' uh, fist, uh, iron-like grip, I should say, on the um, decisions which are made. What I'd say is interesting, Duncan, is um, having spoke to several people who deal with these gargantuan mergers and takeovers in terms of uh, huge corporations like Manchester United has become, is that um, despite the fact that uh, Manchester United have been briefing that Kevin Glazer is not actually selling, he's just um, made a declaration to the authorities at the New York Stock Exchange, which allow him to convert his shareholding, that there is no smoke without fire with regards to this, and that perhaps, hypothetically, and I do stress that, that um, this is more of a you-can't-catch-a-fish-without-bait situation, i.e. if Kevin Glazer, on his own, was to desert the family cabal and sell his shares individually, it would depreciate the value of his five siblings' shares. And that may just be the case. And again, we do stress, hypothetically, that Kevin is the one who is being asked to effectively put some blood in the water of the um, investment market and see and try to flush out if and how much someone out there is willing to pay for all six siblings' shares. Now, this comes against the background, of course, where um, Manchester United uh, have um, recorded record revenue, but have also warned that the revenue is expected to decrease in the next tax year. But Duncan also, and you have the details on this, sponsorship revenues fail to qualify for Champions League, as well as poor performance on the pitch, could be all factors in the possibility that just maybe, maybe the Glazers are willing to cash in on their investment now rather than wait to a point maybe quite close in the future where the price will go down and when they will not be able to accrue so much profit for their investment. Well, well, certainly what Kevin Glazer has done is considered to be strange by experts um, on the uh, 
New York stock market and the way that Manchester United are listed. Remember, they um, constructed their partial sale of shares to the stock market in the fashion in which they retained control with this B class and A class of shares. The Glazers only holding the B class shares, which have 10 times as many votes as the A class shares. So for Kevin Glazer to convert his holding into A class shares, um, does seem strange because the, the the analysis of external sources is you would only do that if you are planning a sale. So your interpretation that this uh, could be a, a sort of baiting of the market um, to see how people react when there's this SEC filing, public filing that um, that the conversion has been made is a is an intriguing one. It all, as you say, comes in the in the background of of real financial turbulence for Manchester United. Um, the latest results to the stock market, although they declared record revenues, they warned that in the 1920 uh, year, so this current uh, football season, that they expected revenues to decline from that record level of £627 million to between £560 million and £580 million, which is actually less uh, than the previous financial year in which they've reported on. Um, if you look at the stock market price, the stock market valuation of Manchester United, that's decreased hugely um, over the last year or so. So the, I believe the highest um, share price for Manchester United was $26. Um, it's just over $26 in August 2018. If you look at today's price as we record, it's $16.16 per share. So that's basically a drop of 38%. And the, the market capitalization of the club, so a current uh, market value, if you were able to buy all the shares today um, at the price they are on the, on the New York Stock Exchange is $2.64 billion. At one point, the valuation was over $4 billion. Um, if you talk to people in the city about what they expect the, the takeover, a takeover, if it's to happen in Manchester United, what the realistic valuation is, what the kind of price the Glazers would be looking at, the figures they talk about are, are in the $5 billion range. So they're way off um, that in terms of market capitalization at, at present. As you say, they also have an issue with sponsorship. They do not expect Chevrolet, um, it seems, to renew what was, by some margin, um, uh, the, the biggest deal English football club had ever secured um, and uh, led to uh, the departure of the individuals responsible for uh, agreeing that sponsorship deal with Manchester United shortly after he had done so. The noises from Old Trafford are that they, they, they think they can beat that figure um, with a new sponsorship deal, but of, of course that has to be proven. What is the case is that um, some of their commercial contracts are dependent on them qualifying for the Champions League um, at least once out of every two seasons. So if they go two seasons without being in the Champions League, some of those contracts are reduced, most notably their um, very large kit sponsorship deal with Adidas. And again, as things stand with Manchester United um, 15 points off the top of the Premier League after just eight games, just two points away from the, the relegation zone, with a manager in charge who's won just two of the last 13 
Premier League games he has been in control of, who has yet to win an away game in any competition since becoming full-time manager of the club. Um, the expectation that they can qualify for the Champions League this year um, with that manager in place and with the squad he and Edward would have built for this season uh, is pretty low. So you're realistically, you're, you're looking at a, a, a significant drop-off in revenue in terms of sponsorship for next season and again missing Champions League um, for another season which is worth uh, a large amount of cash and broadcasting revenue um, and other commercial deals associated around it. So you've got a context where um, there could be reasons that it makes sense why the Glazers could be baiting the water as you, as you put it in terms of trying to find a buyer. There are noises from Saudi Arabia, um, not as far as I can see coming from the Saudi Arabian royal family, who will be the decisive factor if they go through with the, 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 the takeover of Manchester United that they have definitely explored in recent years. Um, but there are noises from Saudi Arabia that that, that might be uh, on the move again and it's something that they could be actively looking at. Certainly, um, the Saudi uh, establishment wants to follow the line of considering following the line that Qatar and Abu Dhabi have done in buying um, and building big uh, Champions League and, uh, and and domestic title winning teams uh, as a as a, a political exercise, as a marketing exercise, as a as a move towards d- diversifying their economies away from oil, and that's what. Abu Dhabi did with Manchester City, what Qatar have done with Paris Saint-Germain. So there, there is a, a potential um, buyer out there that has shown uh, interest in the past, although you have to say that would be an extremely controversial purchase were it to go through, um, given what has happened with PSG, given what's happened with Manchester City in terms of rule-breaking in UEFA and, and the general um, kickback against nation-states owning football clubs in European football. You've also got the Glazers Out movement um, chipping away at the owners, um, chipping away at the owners' sponsors, um, proposing that fans boycott Manchester United app, which is um, something that uh, Manchester United have been very proud about in their investor meetings, the growth of of, uh, followers of that app, which allows them, it's designed to allow them to market directly to international followers, increase their commercial revenues, which again, another aspect here, commercial revenues at Manchester United have flatlined um, for several years now. So that area in which the club has excelled, um, which drove um, their uh, financial strength in English football for a long period has ceased to happen. And, and you, I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say the Glazers will be asking questions about that and wondering um, whether now is a peak time to sell, um, given that they don't seem to be able to increase commercial revenues and given that there are um, broader concerns over what will happen to television broadcasting deals with the, um, with the shift towards uh, internet um, direct to consumer broadcasting um, from the satellite model that predominates at present. So you know, they don't have their troubles to seek, I think is the, is the conclusion from all of that. And um, therefore, it makes sense that they would be considering options um, as to what they do with the club. And also, Duncan, given the current geopolitical environment and the tensions in the Middle East between 
uh, the countries which are obviously very closely linked geographically. Um, the 2022 Qatar World Cup coming up. Seems to me that it's a kind of prime time to at least try and tempt Saudi Arabia into making a bid, um, a formal bid, unlike the declared interest earlier um, in the class calendar year for Manchester United. I think, as you rightly point out, there is many reasons why the Glazers can expect a downturn in the value of their shares, in the value of club revenue, which of course affects the share price as well. And as every Manchester United fan would, I think, agree, they're only in it for the money. So if they're only in it for the money and the money is decreasing, then this has to be a fairly watershed moment for the Glazer family with regards to the ownership of the club and also for the club itself with regards to where the direction they're going in as of this point. I think that's the, the, the key aspect here. Glazers are in this to make profit. There are two ways you can make profit. You can continue holding the club and take dividends um, and director's fees from the club, as they have done for many years, um, or borrow against the value of their shares. Um, is another way you can you can take financial advantage um, from being the the primary owners of Manchester United, the guys who own the the voting rights and, the, and can determine which way the club goes, or you can sell the club. Um, and you're right. If you're thinking about selling the club, or you're making that calculation that this could be the time to cash in on. Remember something they bought um, on the from the the revenue of the club itself. So this was a leverage takeover, organised um, by Edwardwood's company at the time, which allowed them to buy the club by borrowing against the value of the asset they were buying. So they didn't put their own um, money in in significant. Uh, chunk in terms of what was required to gain control of the club um, to do that so that, that you're, you're looking um, at a huge profit on what was less than a billion pounds um, purchase price. But if, if, that's, your, if that's your idea, um, it's to find a buyer and sell at what you perceive to be the top of the market, then getting Saudi Arabia interested is a very good strategy in the sense that that will drive up the price. There are very there aren't many people on the market can afford to buy football clubs when the, the valuations go to this sort of five, four, five billion pound mark. Um, so uh, if you're trying to maximise your profit, get try and get more than one interested party. And if you're looking around the globe at present. Saudi Arabia are um, very appealing candidates to uh, loop into that um, attempted sale. All very intriguing stuff. And um, we appreciate that uh, you guys out there um, like to hear about the details of um, the finances at clubs. But of course, we also like to bring in the football as well. And um, from the boardroom, to the kind of twilight zone at Old Trafford, which is the place which exists between the boardroom and the dressing room, and that is the uh, ongoing search for a director of football. We've got a, a nice um, pithy question here from DYIDA, who says, you're the new Manchester United director of football. You've got 200 million to spend. What do you do? Duncan, um, I'm tempted to answer this question by saying, 
take the 200 million, buy myself a lovely mansion in the Maldives and hope that no one <laughs> finds me. Uh, but I suspect that's not the answer that uh, our listener is asking for. Uh, can we conjure up between us exactly where the positions that need to be strengthened and how they can be strengthened? Uh, and let's just assume this is a January window, which, of course, is a very difficult one to deal in. Um, but clearly, central defence, uh, left back, right back, uh, well, basically everywhere, really, isn't it? Well, Manchester United seem to be briefing along those lines in the recent um, off-record uh, statements about um, how good their scouting department is and how successful the summer window is, which they, they also managed to tally with this idea that they need eight more signings um, to turn around the club, uh, turn around the, the, the team's fortunes comprehensively, and, and they will be uh, ready and, uh, and working on a plan to do it, which seems to contradict itself somewhat but um, there you go Manchester United often do contradict themselves um, in uh, in their actions never mind their briefings I have to say this is the definition of a hypothetical question as um, there is obviously no way I would ever be director of football at a Premier League club or any other club um, albeit um, you might have said it was a hypothetical idea that uh, a chartered accountant and investment banker um, would become the effective director of football of the most important Premier League club. And, and that did happen with Ed Woodward. Um, if you were to ask me about that situation, if in this fantasy world I was to become director of football and someone decided, made that bad decision in handing control over to me, uh, what I would do is something that um, I think Michael Emanalo did at Chelsea, similar to what Michael Emanalo did at Chelsea when he inherited a position that he wasn't um, qualified for in terms of sourcing players and that would be to hire someone who was really good at the job and uh, and then take the credit for their successes um, which is something Ed Woodward really should have done quite a while ago as chief executive and in installing a top quality technical director who knew the market well who could build a strategy for the team who could advise on the reorganization of football departments build a relationship with the manager help him um, deal with the players uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and, um, and recruit with a, with a long-term strategy in place. So that's, um, I think that's the key thing to do is get someone in who is very good at the job and, uh, and then give them the authority uh, to do it well. From your answer, Duncan, I don't think you spent a single penny of that £200 million that was offered to you by TYIDL. Um, <laughs> no. No, but I, I, as I say, I'm quite happy to take the credit when my uh, my appointment um, improves matters at Manchester United and uh, and take the pay rise that would come along with it subsequently. But this this thought doesn't appear to have occurred to Ed Woodward, funnily enough, who seems to like contro controlling transfers and and having his uh, uh, control and status involved with them. Um, um, dealing with contracts and, and uh, coming up with these various strategies that we've seen at Manchester United um, through his uh, reign as executive vice chairman. OK, I'm going to be much more pragmatic than you, Duncan, and I'm going to answer our listeners' question by saying, I take that 200 billion quid, I put it on Manchester United to fail to qualify for the Champions League at 3-1, to one, therefore... <laughs> winning myself <laughs> enough money to buy Kylian Mbappe and probably uh, two other players for next season and then putting the rest of the money on 
Manchester to win the league that season under a new manager. So there we go. That's that's going to be my very, very amateur advice uh, and very high risk as well. But let's face it, there's not much more high risk than um, employing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer as manager given his recent travails in terms of results. Uh, we're going to move on to Sean Tyler. Uh, we don't apologise, it's not a Manchester question, because as we've said before, um, they are the crisis club, and so we get lots of questions regarding Manchester United, and I'm sure even as a fan of another club, you quite like to hear uh, not just the questions, but the answers and also the analysis of this. And this, of course, this next one refers back to our Monday podcast, where Duncan revealed that Mauricio Pochettino has targeted the Manchester job ahead of Real Madrid as his next post. And Sean has asked, if Poch becomes MUFC manager before Christmas, how can he make an impact without causing too many soft tissue injuries? He is well known for training his players hard. Duncan? Yeah, it's a, a, a relevant question, especially after an international break in which David De Gea has um, gone down with a soft tissue injury and is a doubt for um, the hugely important home Premier League tie against um, Liverpool uh, this weekend. Uh, so adding to that long list of first-team players who have suffered soft tissue injuries under Solskjaer both last season and this season um, when he'd had that pre-season um, that he kept saying would make Manchester United play better football and make his players more robust um, for this crucial campaign. Um, I think there's a misunderstanding here um, in terms of what causes injuries. Um, that's not simply the case that uh, the degree of work you put through players um, necessarily correlates with the, the amount of injuries um, that result, the soft tissue injuries that result. Obviously, if you overtrain the players, you end up with soft tissue injuries, but there are different ways to train. There are lots of different methodologies. There are lots of different monitoring practices. There are different ways uh, to rotate your team, um, different ways to protect players with the, with the goal of uh, getting as many effective minutes out of each player through a season as you can um, at the right times in the key games. Um, and I think though that means you can have someone like Pochettino or another coach um, come in and change the training regime and, uh, and get better performances on the pitch and have less injuries despite working the players hard. Um, I think there's there's also a misconception that um, the only way you can work a player hard is to get them to do lots of running um, and stretch them. That's not necessarily the case. You can work a player hard using the tactical periodization method that um, Jose Mourinho's assistant, Rui Faria, uh, is very famous for, which um, excludes any running off the ball. Um, the physical work is done on the ball simultaneous with tactical work and uh, and has a, a, an immensely good track record of um, success on the field, performances uh, in terms of uh, football results and trophies and in terms of uh, reducing uh, the number of soft tissue injuries relative to other training methods. So um, there are options there and, uh, and I don't think it's, the, the, I think the assumption that 
where Pochettino to come in during the season, um, he'd be hamstrung, to use an appropriate word, um, is slightly misguided. Obviously, he would have to take account of where he inherits the players. I think that would be the, the handicap because he's got to deal with um, effectively the past year of, of Solskjaer mandated physical training. But it doesn't mean he can't change things and he can't improve things. I think it's also important to point out, Duncan, that for the first time uh, in Premier League history, there's going to be a winter break. Um, and when all clubs will get the chance to rest effectively for between nine and 11 days um, before coming back to play in the new year. And of course, what we know uh, about Pochettino, he is someone who is extremely addicted to detail. And if hypothetically were to become Manchester United manager, you can be sure that he would uh, delegate a forensic inventory of every player's biometrics and all of their um, stress and strains in terms of uh, muscle tissue uh, that they've experienced until that part of the season, and then take action from there uh, as far as uh, managing and coaching and managing exec- uh, the possibility of injuries as well. So I think you're right in what you say. It's, it's not a case of um, he would struggle to um, keep the players fit. I think it's more a case of with any head coach uh, elite football club you um, what you do is is you organise your medical team and your uh, statistical analysis team as well to ensure that you uh, effectively protect your players from those kind of injuries based on their medical facts and also their playing time and game time to that point so and of course we've seen the uh, positive influences of changing manager mid-season Solskjaer himself was a benefactor of that when he first came in to replace Mourinho and players effectively who were sitting down or certainly looked like they weren't doing very much started to run through brick walls, uh, achieving a a run of results which effectively got them the job full time. So again, that has to be taken into account and that's not necessarily the physical aspect, that is the mental aspect and the motivational aspect of what happens in football uh, day to day. Absolutely, absolutely. And talking to people who specialise on on physical training and conditioning and monitoring um, where players are, uh, they repeatedly emphasise the psychological um, aspect and how important that is in um, keeping players on side, keeping players happy and motivated and believing um, that they can win games and believing they're fit enough. All of that's important too. Going to move on to a question which will certainly be tickling Duncan's uh, fancy, I think, from Sammy1679, who asks, Doesn't it look bad on Jose Mourinho, Duncan, that Carlo Ancelotti and Zinedine Zidane won European Champions League titles so soon after he left Real Madrid? Um, was that a surprise to you, or was it just plain luck on their part? This is, I mean, it's a, a kind of a. Um old chestnut of a point which is to to say look Mourinho wasn't very good at Real Madrid even though he um, was the manager who ended Pep Guardiola's uh, run of titles at Barcelona and did so with the the league of records um, most goals scored most wins most points etc 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 because when he left the club, he was replaced by Carlo Ancelotti, who um, went and won the Champions League. And then they had a, a, a season hiatus 
um, and won three in a row under Zinedine Zidane. Therefore, um, the other managers, Mourinho and Rafa Benitez, um, looked bad because they didn't manage to win the Champions League with a similar squad. I think you look at the history of Real Madrid here, if you're going to make that analysis, you've got to look at where they were when Mourinho came in. And I think people forget that they had an abject record in the Champions League um, in the seasons uh, preceding Mourinho. And that was one of the key reasons why he was brought to the club. It was to win them the Champions League again, um, because that was uh, fundamental to their identity of club, and to stop Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, because that was um, a huge insult to them as a club. He only achieved the latter, but he remember got to three semi-finals in his three seasons at Madrid um, penalty shootout costing him a final um, on at least one occasion and the previous seven years Real Madrid hadn't been to a semi-final so they went from seven campaigns no semi-finals and six of those um, not even reaching a quarter final to three consecutive semis um, won that league and um I think you, if you asked Jose Mourinho about that directly, his argument would be, well, I had a contribution to improving Madrid in the Champions League, teaching this team how to uh, play better and get deep into the competition. Hugely frustrating that I didn't manage to win it, but um, my contribution was there. And then my successor, uh, successors built upon that. Um and, you know, I think that that uh, you really have to consider that as the alternative side of the argument. And uh, you also have to say that three semifinals isn't really that bad a return um, for any coach in the Champions League. And, you know, you might want to look at the, the man who is generally labelled as being the best manager in football at present and note that um, he hasn't won the Champions League. Um, since he left Barcelona and since he was uh, divested of Lionel Messi, despite um, having the riches of uh, Bayern Munich to coach at and inheriting a team who had just won the Champions League, um, much to Guardiola's chagrin, um, when he uh, had already agreed to take over from Jupp Heynckes. And, um, and then Manchester City, even worse, um, so the, the most expensive squad in the history of the, of the game um, owners who desperately want to be the first Middle East owners to win the Champions League and um, only able to win one knockout tie in three seasons despite having effectively the club built for him and all its structures built um, for that sole goal or that primary goal of winning the Champions League so it's you also have to remember it's not an easy thing to do no matter how good you are as a coach. Compelling argument there from Duncan, as always. Um, Champions League returns next week, Duncan. Uh, anything tickle your fancy with regards to ties or indeed how things are going so far in terms of the progress of certain clubs or indeed does any one particular club? Uh, have you seen something in that uh, particular competition which makes you think, ooh, I didn't... I wasn't sure that they were going to do that well. Look, I think the interesting things will be to watch are, are Real Madrid for sure, um, yeah. given that they lost their first game and should have lost their second game at home to Club Brugge. I think another um, another poor performance for Zidane will not 
um, do him any favours in this period in which Florentino Perez is readying to dismiss him when results allow him to do so. Um, and I think um, Tottenham um, are also going to be very interesting given where Maurizio Pochettino is, given where the squad is, given the issues with Daniel Levy and, and that hammering they, they received at uh, the naming rights lane um, in their last uh, Champions League outing. Bayern Munich certainly one of the teams to watch given that eye-catching 7-2 win against the naming rights lane 11. It is Wednesday's podcast, which means we will present yet again the Donkey Award for usually for shaming football or in some way <laughs> discrediting it, um, as is our want. One day, Duncan, I think we'll give it to someone who's done something positive. What do you think? I think that's completely against the spirit of the Donkey Award, as 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 put together by the famous Kaiser Duck, who now has a. a and as is, is you, you're just named after you as well, then you do get the final say on that. Well, in keeping with that particular spirit, <laughs> I didn't get the final say in it being named after me. So, <laughs> sure about yeah, you, all, all we got was a picture of your head on top of an Oscar. That's true. Uh, this week's award is we're going to give it context uh, for the. Um, President of the Bulgarian Football Association, uh, who resigned uh, under pressure from, the, indeed, none other than the country's president uh, after the racism scandal, uh, which blighted England's 6-0 win and qualification for Euro 2020 uh, this week. And of course, the fallout from that, in which a whole four people have been arrested by the Bulgarian police for racist chanting. Seems just a little bit less than perhaps was actually happening in the stadium. However, we will take it at its face value. And we've decided to uh, name this donkey the award for falling or not on your sword following unpopular behaviour. Now, I have obviously the golden envelope here, which I now need to open and uh, read out the candidacy for this week's donkey. Let me just uh, get this correctly. Here we go. Oh, it's a bit of a tough one this week, Donkey. I think it might be to do with the sheer uh, gravity of the subject we're dealing with. Um, so, <laughs> and the first one, which will bring much amusement to everyone looking forward to this week's Super Sunday game between Manchester and Liverpool, is the unmistakable Jamie Carricker who, of course, uh, was filmed by an unfortunate um, young uh, person um, having had been, uh, let's just say, taunted a little bit, Duncan, by um, her dad uh, on a, a journey back from Manchester to Liverpool after a defeat. And uh, unfortunately, Jamie decided to um, relieve himself of the contents of his mouth uh, in that particular exchange. Um but, of course, did not fall on his sword, although he was suspended for the remainder of that season from appearing on Sky. The second nomination, uh, very popular man on the transfer window, has to be said. Uh, I hope you read Jonathan Northcroft, our friend's piece interview with him last weekend. If you haven't, please do. It was exceptional. Uh, and that is Sven Joran Eriksson, who, of course, was under severe pressure to resign for his uh, involvement in the Faria Alam FA scandal, but somehow didn't just not resign, but survived being sacked as well, despite the fact his actual boss, the chief executive at the time, was involved in a similar relationship with said FA employee. And thirdly, a bit more historical, 
but nonetheless worthy of a nomination, of course, is Kevin Keegan, who in the wake of losing to Germany in the final game at the Old Wembley in 2001, uh, including the Diddy Haman and, of course, the um, girl squirrel screaming controversy, which we've talked about many times on the podcast, uh, admitted that he didn't know what was going on on the pitch nor how to solve it and subsequently resigned in the toilet. Duncan, of course, as always, it's up to you to award your own named award. Uh, please give us your opinions on the nominations and also, of course, your winner. Well, I think we have to exclude Kevin Keegan because he did the honourable thing in, in this case. and um, uh, So he fell on his sword, yeah, OK. He did indeed. And I, and I think uh, quite a few Manchester United fans might be suggesting that... Um, their current manager takes the lead from uh, Kevin Keegan's analysis of his competence uh, of being in charge of England and uh, and falls on on uh, his own sword. Um, Are we sure Ollie could find the toilet though in which to do it? So, <laughs> because it doesn't seem to be able to find a winning formula or team formation, so we have to ask that question. Um, I, I, perhaps someone can guide him there. Um, maybe he can, maybe <laughs> he can get his his new um, coach that he's appointed this week um, to, to help him with that one. Um, Sven, uh, I think again, uh, because uh, Sven managed to survive that situation and uh, and quickly found someone else to follow on his Swedish sword. Subsequent to that being exposed by the papers, he, he also is uh, eliminated from the candidacy here which means that Jimmy Carragher is, a, is going to get the award. Um, and uh, I wonder if he will be covering the game for Sky this weekend and um, whether he will be um, equipped with a driver uh, and, uh, <laughs> and strict instructions not to wind his windows down in the, in the has-to-be-said unlikely event that um, Liverpool lose at Old Trafford um, again against Solskjaer's team this weekend. I don't think he needs a driver. He just needs a water put pistol filled with clean water. That's all he needs. That'd be that'd be much more acceptable. So, Jimmy Carker, you are the winner of this week's Donkey Award. We will send you the golden statue along with um, a small water pistol filled with said spring water, just in case things go against you this Sunday. Um, we hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, we've certainly enjoyed answering your questions. And of course, we are up for continuing the debate on Twitter. And you can do so at Transfer Podcast or individually with Duncan and I at Duncan Castles at Garbo SJ. Uh, if you, indeed, we know you have uh, enjoyed what you've heard, but please give something back and go to iTunes. Give us that five-star review and we will expand the community and therefore expand the debate as well. This being Wednesday, we will, of course, be back on Friday. Uh, big weekend of football ahead. But, of course, we will be following up as well on the breaking news we've brought you today on Manchester United and shareholding uh, situation happening there. Uh, we hope that we will see you through the transfer window on Friday. And for now, thanks for listening.